This is an ITN news flash from the Olympic Village in Munich, where early this morning armed Palestinian guerrillas raided the sleeping quarters of the Israeli team. The gunmen shot dead two Israelis and are now holding 20 athletes and six officials as hostages. The guerrillas are demanding the release of 250 Arabs held prisoner in Israel and have set noon as the deadline for their release. Negotiations are going on with the German government. The raid happened at about 4 a.m. A liaison officer with the Israeli team takes up the story. Between 4 and 5 o'clock this morning, a group of Arab Palestinians terrorists uh, rushed inside the building, uh, killed the coach of our wrestlers, uh, Moshe Weinberg, and took as hostages some of our uh, sportsmen. Afterwards, they uh, gave an ultimatum that until 12 o'clock today, uh, some of the Arabic um, terrorists who are held in prison in Israel must be released, otherwise are going to kill some of the sportsmen who are um, staying there in their hands. The Arab Palestinians are in control of the Israeli bloc? Uh, I don't know if the whole block, but at least at one of the entrances, which uh, have some of the Israeli sportsmen there. How was the Israeli killed? Uh, I don't know, but uh, as I can uh, assume, he was killed in his bed. After the shooting, the Palestinians allowed an ambulance to drive in to pick up one of the wounded Israelis, but the ambulance men retreated without him when firing suddenly started between the Palestinians and the police. The Israeli died soon afterwards. His colleague died in the flats. Nearly 500 German security police have now sealed off the village and are mounting heavy machine guns in the square. They are keeping cameramen and television reporters and spectators well away. The guerrillas have just announced that they are demanding to be allowed to fly out of Germany to an unnexination once their demands have been met. Hi everyone and welcome back to ES46560 Race Class Empire at the Olympics. This week we'll unpack the major shifts in surveillance of the Olympics driven by an attack which occurred during the 1972 Olympic Games. Part of the assigned text this week is Visions of Eight, which is a collection of eight short films shot during the 1972 Olympics. You are not required to watch all of them unless you want to. Only the three listed. Um, all the relevant information for accessing the films are on Canvas, but feel free to reach out if you have any issues accessing them. So the three films are The Beginning is the title, and it's the very first one um, that ends around 8 minutes 47 seconds. The second one is called The Strongest. It starts at 8.48 and ends at 21 minutes 26 seconds. And the third one is called The Longest, and that one is from 1 hour 23 minutes 18 seconds to 1 hour 45 minutes 49 seconds. As previously mentioned, we'll be having a Zoom session to watch together if you're interested. It's about 45 minutes or so of viewing total, those three films, and then we'll discuss for a bit after. So this will happen on Wednesday during our previous scheduled meeting time at 10 o'clock a.m. The Zoom link is posted to the Canvas page. So there's a lot we could discuss surrounding the 1972 Olympic Games, one of the biggest upsets and maybe just plain upsetting ends to a game occurred during the gold medal men's basketball game. It's kind of a reverse miracle on ice, if you will, where the Soviets beat the U.S. to take home gold in a sport created in the United States. Amongst the clock controversy of that game, the world records topped across the various sports and numbers of countries represented. There's also the worst moment in Olympics history, a terrorist attack which forever changed the games. The Paul Hockenos piece, The Ghost of Munich, 
argues that the 1972 Olympics, more than any other, are really what have shaped the Olympics today as we know them. And this is primarily due to the impact of the tragedy which occurred there where 11 athletes and coaches were murdered. To understand the nuance of their murders, how they happened, and the IOC's approach following this terrorist attack is to return to many of the previous areas we've covered so far, namely Olympism and the nation state, as well as protest and the Olympics. As Hakanos writes, Germany's desire to portray progress, given its last Olympics were the infamous 1936 Nazi Olympics, led to some lax security infrastructure in the attempt to seem open and avoid any imagery signifying the country's past. Hocknose writes that, quote, the game's low-key security was meant to reflect Germany's new peaceful bearing. The Olympic Village was surrounded by nothing more than a six-foot-high chain-link fence, barbed wire, naturally a historical no-go, end quote. So that approach of attempting to avoid um, anything that brought the visual representation of a concentration camp, of any kind of dictatorship, is really what West Germany was thinking about in the 1970s. In his piece, Hakanos writes that there were nine Palestinian commandos from Black September who scaled the back fence and took hostage much of the Israeli team. There were two that were killed in an attempt to resist the attack, and one of their bodies was dumped in plain view for the world's cameras. The special horror of the situation, Hakanos writes, was plain to the, Ger- the West Germans immediately. Once again, Jews faced political murder on German soil. End quote. At the time, many people wanted the Olympic Games to be stopped at that point. A terrorist attack has occurred. We need to shut down everything. We need to get everyone home safely. And really, in hindsight, it's really remarkable that the Games continued, that in the midst of all of this, 11 people are dead, that the Olympic Games would still continue. And I think a lot of it is... uh, rooted in the same kind of logic of what it means to quote-unquote let the terrorists win by ending the games. I'm interested to hear from some of you what you think should have happened. If When you watch The Longest, one of the Visions of Eight short films, you see the impact of that 24-hour stoppage for the funeral. They have these funerals for the athletes who've died. Everything stops for 24 hours in the village. And then marathoners, which is the last event, are are still preparing for their event. This idea of like, if you are one of the athletes on the on the second half of this, kind of imagining this terrorist attack breaks the Olympics up into before and after, it's really hard to focus on your sport, I would imagine. Um, it's really hard to block all of this out as an athlete. Fellow Olympians were murdered not far from where you sleep. You're thousands of miles away from home. It's all really a lot. In the Sugden piece, watched by the games, surveillance and security at the Olympics, he actually takes a step back to understand all of this, the 1968 Olympics, and considers how the surge in political protests at the Olympics also contributes to the rise in surveillance, especially given Tommy Smith and John Carlos's protests on the podium, as well as the massacre at Tlatelolco Plaza, where the Mexican government murdered hundreds of student protesters days before the start of the games. Four years later, as we're looking at it, Black September's kidnapping and murder of 11 Israeli athletes and coaches was yet another strike to the idea of an apolitical Olympic Games. Rather, the Games became a central site of political strife in the 1960s and 1970s. Sugden argues that these events occur around sports because they offer large groups of people converging upon one space, and they represent national prestige and power. 
And while we'll talk a lot about the arms race included in hosting the games in terms of surveillance budgets in the next podcast, I'll also point to how much more countries spend on security post 9-11. Sugden writes that, quote, despite the relative lack of terrorist involvement in the games since Munich, international terrorism remains the number one concern for host cities. This is worse since 9-11 as provided successive host cities and their respective governments with the license to do almost anything in the name of counterterrorism, end quote. Sugden provides staggering numbers which detail how much security costs have gone up over the past few decades. He also notes how during the 2004 Olympics in Athens, a game changer in terms of surveillance budget for the games, by the way, The distrust of other countries is on full display as he suggests that the CIA was spying on the Greek authorities to determine what kind of security they were putting into place for the games. The security infrastructure for the Olympics has been described as a super panopticon. Panopticon being a surveillance structure based off the writings of Michel Foucault, a theorist who described the web-like structure of a prison where prisoners cannot see who is watching them, but the all-knowing guard can see everyone at once. Both Sugden and he's quoting Samatas are arguing that the hyper-surveilled space of sport and the Olympics is the panopticon on steroids. The security and surveillance industrial complex that moves into a host city doesn't break down and pack up like the circus once it's over. Rather, host cities use fear surrounding the Olympics to bring in military-grade equipment, which is kept after the games, to surveil and police its own citizens. Governments need only invoke Munich in 1972 or New York in 2001 as a reason to quote-unquote protect citizens with high-tech measures, increased police presence, and military-grade weaponry, all paid for with taxpayer dollars. Perhaps, Sugden writes, it is time we got used to the fact that rather than us watching the games, for the foreseeable future, it is more of a case of the games watching us, end quote. We'll dig into this more next time as we discuss surveillance and terrorism within a larger conversation surrounding capitalism. Until next time.